0: Um, so let's begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this time that we may grow in union with you and each other through the study of your worship in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, wow, thank you for coming back. Um, also thank you, Teresa, uh, for baking cake and, uh, coffee. Uh, so now we're going to be getting into the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, the problem with getting in the liturgy of the Eucharist is it's really heavily laden with a lot of symbols, um, and but the symbols usually come in words. Um, but backing up, there's this uh, book that this guy wrote uh, called Coming Clean by Seth Haynes, and he actually was a Baptist who was this lawyer uh, in this huge, big Arkansas uh, um, uh, firm, and except he had a problem with drinking. And he is trying to get sober, and his father's Catholic, so he went to church and he was struck with this Eucharistic desire um, that God and man will be one in a meal. Um, and that's when he re- wakes up and realizes everything is sacramental, even as hunger versus sobriety is really this desire for God, even the hunger. And Eucharistic spirituality, it wants us to make a commitment out of uh, this hunger. And we can see all human activities really as a way of this union between us and God. And so I love the idea that um, how he ties the Eucharist with this action of waking up and becoming sober, that once you have this real hunger for God, that helps you in your sobriety. Um, and I, that's a Eucharistic spirituality. So think about this. The manna, it didn't just drop out of the sky. Well, actually it did. But um, before, the people had this hunger, uh, kind of like sobriety. They first expressed this hunger, and then God can feed them. I know that sounds um, obvious, but even if you could, um, you won't really appreciate the Eucharist until, like the guy who's kind of coming out of sobriety, you have this real hunger for God. And when we get into the liturgy of the Eucharist, and this is a really big theme, I'll probably hit it way too much in my time here at uh, St. Pius, is the meal theme in the Bible. It's actually the number one theme in the Bible, is meal. Which always strikes me as strange. Uh, Protestants said, we follow the Bible. But they never seem to preach um, that a meal in the Bible is itself the way we worship. From the beginning and end of the Bible, there's always this meal theme. Meal is how God asks us to worship. More specifically, uh, through a meal is how the people always enter into this covenant with God. And so you see the meal theme right at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And you have two trees that you can eat from. Um, One tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and selfishness, that's actually how you... The only thing you have to do is not eat that, just walk by that tree, not eat that fruit. Um, And then what we're supposed to eat was um, really from the tree of life. Actually, in the Garden of Eden, if you notice, it says there's a lot of fruit trees. And the other fruit trees, they'll give you physical life, but the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of life, that actually has some of God's own life in it. Um, And if you eat from that tree, that fruit will give you eternal life. So right in the Garden of Eden, there's not just this, um, there's regular food and there's spiritual food, but you do have to make a small sacrifice of not eating that food. Um, so do you get like there's a meal theme right there. And it also kind of pre, you know, prefigures the Eucharist that, wow, we eat from the tree of life as well, this time the cross. And the fruit of the tree of cross, what's on the cross? Christ. Uh, that's how we get a part of God's divine life. Um, or Cain and Abel, back to Genesis. Cain and Abel Both are offering a sacrifice, food. One is acceptable, one is not. The Noah story, how does it end? It ends in a meal. Or how does monotheism begin? How does religion itself begin in the Bible? It begins with the story of Abraham. That's the beginning of monotheism. And I love that story. Hopefully you guys know. You guys are giving me a blank stare, which kind of scares me. Um, But just quickly retelling the story. Uh, this old couple, that's how religion begins, with an old couple. Um, Why did you hit her? She's not that old. Uh, (laughs) All right, I want you two separated. Um, uh, (laughs) No kissing in class. Do not kiss in front of the celibate. Anyhow, um, I got distracted. (laughs) I was trying to make a joke. but Okay, so, Abraham He's sitting by the door of his tent, and he sees three strangers, very important, not of his clan, blood, caste, whatever, and he doesn't care. And he runs out and calls them, my Lord, and washes their feet. That's going to be important at the (laughs) uh, uh, last supper. He washes their feet, and he says, let let me make you a little something. And he kills a whole cow for them, a whole bull. And his wife, she's crazy, too. She bakes three measures of flour. Christ will mention three measures, which is 50 pounds of bread. Um, That's a lot of bread for three people. Um, And they turn out to be angels. And because they offered the strangers hospitality, God will offer them more life. So the story of monotheism begins with a meal. Abraham had this desire to love other people. And the point being is that, oh, because you fed the three angels, symbolizing God, God will feed you. And the rest of the Bible is God trying to have a meal with us. Or um, Abraham, when he goes into the promised land, what does he do, especially by every tree? Every tree, what does he do? He builds an altar. Only on one altar do you really find out what the sacrifice is, and it's his son. But don't worry, his son doesn't die. What he eats is the Lamb of God. He should prefigure Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, but he makes all, in the Holy Land, what he makes is all these altars, these meals with God. Or Exodus. Exodus is about this Passover meal. And then after what frees us in the, is the meal, And after that, God gives chapters and chapters about how to build a temple for this meal. Or the prophets, it's again a meal theme. What do the prophets speak out about the most? About the fact that the sacrifices that you offer God are not doing justice. That the meals that you have for and with God, making a vow to God, is not creating justice. And that ticks God off. But once again, it's a meal theme. Jesus in Luke and Mark um, and Matthew and John, it's all about a meal. Um, The next class will be on archangels, then the ones after that, we're going to do a Bible study on the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is 10 meals with Jesus. Each meal, you make a vow to morality. Or Mark, Mark has this subtle way of always bringing up the meal where he'll say things like, um, they had no food with them except for the one bread. Uh, one loaf that was always with them. And you think, if you read it, like literally, you think, well, what do you mean they have no food except the one loaf that is always with them? You know what he was talking about, right? Christ. Because then he'll say, the loaf got into the boat. Like, what? Christ is the meal. Uh, That's what he reveals in the Gospels. And how does the Bible end? Just as it began, with a meal of all of us around the altar of God sharing in the bread of life. And then he gives another illusion. How does the Bible end? With all of us in the center of the uh, heaven is the tree of life, and that's what we feed on. The Bible ends with a meal. My only point is don't say that you're worshiping the biblical way if, the, um, if you're not worshiping through a meal. It's just so heavy. And when Jesus comes, he wants to remap the meal Based, sorry, the world, he wants to recreate the world through a meal, not through song, not really through preaching, a meal. Um, And interestingly enough, just want to mention, this. there's this awful human being, um, Richard Dawkins, Um, he's this atheist who said, oh, religion started because people were afraid. Actually, we have all these anthropologists, and the anthropologists Will say no studying this you know how religion started anthropologically humans gathering together and gratitude uh, that actually all these ancient rituals were about gratitude to god not fear um so my point being from genesis to everything um it's a meal and a meal in the bible is always tied to a morality you eat the Passover meal. You're obligated to free other people from slavery and the Ten Commandments. Um, when you have the Passover meal, you hold up the unleavened bread, and it starts with the bread of affliction. Um, that uh, the bread of affliction. We eat the bread of the poor. The poor eat unleavened bread because we're the ones who are going to free them. So Jesus redraws morality and meal. or sorry, the world. Through meals, gathering people completely opposite. And so, I said this last time, the liturgy of the word comes from um, the synagogue worship. The liturgy of the Eucharist, where do you think it comes from? Yes, Passover. Somebody whispered Passover. You get an extra cup of coffee. Um, It comes from the Passover meal. The Eucharist is just a Passover meal. Moses says this in the Bible, that what it means to be Jewish, he doesn't use the term Jewish, that what it means to be a Hebrew is that you share in the Passover meal. And he says, you must do this every year. And then you will be one with us. It doesn't matter where or when you celebrate this meal. All of us will be one. Um, The Eucharist is the same thing. Except there's these prophecies that when the Messiah came, The Messiah will be a new Moses, and he'll bring about, like Moses, he'll pray, and the bread of life will uh, come down again, and we will feed forever on the bread of life. And he'll bring about a new Passover. He'll reveal himself on the Passover night by making a new covenant, or a new um, testament is how you'd say it. And then there'll be a new Exodus and a new promised land, a new promised land that's not in Israel, um, and a new law. All that is about the Passover of the Messiah. And so Christ would bring about this new covenant, this new testament, that would be marked about in the Eucharist. So if you notice, um, Jesus in the gospel, when he celebrates a meal, he does four things, and there's four verbs. It always says he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he shares. Like when you're reading the Bible, after a while you can't miss the fact that he takes, blesses, breaks, and shares. Now that's actually Passover verbs too, but that's the liturgy of the Eucharist. The liturgy of the Eucharist is take, so we make an offering of bread and wine as God commanded every Sabbath. That's a take. The bless, that's the Eucharistic prayer itself. The breaking of the bread, that's the fraction rite. Um, I don't know if you noticed that at mass. Really, nobody did. Okay, just these people. I'm worried about this. Um, And the share, what's the share? Communion. So Every time Christ celebrates a meal, that's what he does. When he worships, he always uses those four verbs. So shouldn't we worship the same way Jesus worshipped? And the Passover is the basic order basis for the Eucharist. Um, The Passover, uh, if you hear Jews talk, they'll talk about it as the Seder meal. Seder just means order. There's a certain order that you have to have this meal. And that order is written down in the Haggadah. That's a Jewish text that uh, is the written form of what to do. So the Haggadah in Catholicism is, the order is, the Seder is the gospel. In the gospels, Jesus gives us the order. Take, uh, bless, break, share. Haggadah is also the gospels where I'll explain that in a second, where Jesus says why he's doing all this stuff. In the modern, for us, it's a sacramentary. Um, The Haggadah is what you read from to celebrate the Passover meal. The sacramentary is what the priest reads from. But the Gospels were written to remember uh, the order. So it's our Seder. And the order of the Passover, it starts with this prayer to God the Father, just like Jesus did. Um, The Father has to say this blessing and explain why the unleavened bread and why the wine. And the Father has to mention how it relates to the covenant. Jesus does exactly this in the Gospels at the Last Supper. He does this, and the Jews were at the table, all the apostles, they would have got it. He's playing the role of the Father. He's following an order, but now he's introducing a new order. In Greek, do you know how you say... um, A new covenant? Because remember, the prophecy is at the Passover, the Messiah will uh, enter into a new covenant with humanity. So how do you say new covenant in Greek? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, so it's testament. So have you ever heard of the New Testament? I mean... (laughs) I don't know what I'm dealing with here. Um, But like when you hear the word New Testament, how many people think of a book? Wrong! The New Testament is not a book. The only time Jesus mentions a New Testament is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is actually the New Testament. The New Testament was written down so you know the order, the Haggadah. But the Testament literally is the Eucharist. Um, Jesus explains how this bread is the New Covenant, the New Testament, how the cup relates to the New uh, Covenant, the New Testament. So according to the Gospels, how do you enter into the New Testament? It's not by reading a book, it's by sharing in the Eucharist. Does that make sense? So my point going back, shouldn't we worship the way Christ commanded? And the early church, the Eucharistic prayers were really quite simple. They're basically, the Eucharistic prayer is based on the Passover blessing. And so, like there's this book called the Didache, it's as old as the Gospels. And it's written um, from the early church on just how to celebrate the Eucharist and how to do the baptisms. And a priest does it to the best of his ability. But the Eucharistic prayer just follows the pattern of the Passover. Um, no. In the ancient church, they didn't have books. Books won't exist for a long time after the death of Jesus. They had scrolls. But also, a scroll was enormously expensive. It's not like a priest could walk around carrying stoles or sorry scrolls. Um, so they just had it memorized, and each did it according to the best of their ability. Now, that's a Eucharistic prayer, but over time... Uh, The Eucharistic prayer, it was written down, but it's not like priests are really going to know how to do it until we really come to the printing press. Um, Books were so enormously expensive and rare. so. But what you have is over time, this basic format of the Passover prayer for the Eucharist, it developed what's called, quote-unquote, acquired symbolism. And acquired symbolism, you kind of know what this means. Like, let's say you go to a wedding. And, you know, there's the cutting of the cake. And then in the cutting of the cake, um, you have this little ceremony afterwards where the couple feed themselves and one smushes the cake more into the other one's face. Um, That's all acquired symbolism because if all you're going to do is serve food, why not have pre-sliced cake? Um, Why shove it inside? But that little thing is a ceremony. My only point being is that uh, from the early church on, you had this slow kind of accretions, adding on to the ritual. Now, actually, by the time of the Middle Ages, it's heavily laden with a lot of extra symbols. So Vatican II, I'm just giving you a quick overview. Vatican II was actually this return to how we celebrated the Eucharist in the fourth century. That's what they took as a model. So. It removed a lot of these like political and cultural accretions that kind of confuse the code. Um, like, I kind of love studying that stuff, but it became very late. Like, uh, do you know what a maniple is? Uh, like that. At one time, priests used to have a handkerchief on their wrist so they can wipe the sweat off. But then that became this acquired symbolism, and they'd have this long brocaded. Um, thing that would be not be useful for white being swept from your brow, but um, like, well, that's kind of useless, but it's hanging off my arm. Or they'd have a Copa Magna. Do you know what a Copa Magna is? Nobody knows? Okay. it might. Yeah, only one got, guy got it right. Um, it's like I'm not even with Catholics. Um, <laughs> but it's not just a cape. It's a super long cape. I mean, Superman would be envious of this cape. It's like from here to the room. So it's like the priest was this mini bride. (laughs) And people would hold his, they'd get people to hold his cape. You had all these accretions. Um, So basically, Vatican II was a return back to the uh, 4th century. But the problem is, is that, remember, the center of the liturgy of the Eucharist is what Christ started. The take, the bless, the break, the share. So sometimes, like with a Copa Magna and all this other stuff, becomes becomes overpiled with symbols. With a Copa Magna, you, you've now eclipsed it, that you're not paying attention to the take, break, bless, and share. So that's the four parts of the Eucharist. This morning, we're just going to go over two of them, the take and the bless. The take is the preparation of the gifts. It literally says Jesus took the bread and the, the wine. Um, Now, the key concept here is you must make an offering of your life. Just let you know that's what the symbols are trying to say. And our deepest longing as human beings, if you really think about it, is to give our life away. That's our deepest longing. Now, just psychologically, because I love studying on my side positive psychology, oddly enough, those people who live their lives by giving them away, end up at happy. Those people who decide, well, morally, I'm not going to really give my life away. I'm just going to try and be happy by taking. Guess what? They end up unhappy. And there's just, I just did this interview on my other podcast where somebody asked a question because um, you can ask questions. And this person, um, there's this comedian named Seth Grogan, I think his name is. And he gave this interview. He says, you know, I want to be happy in life. So, you know, my girlfriend and I, we don't want to have kids. We want to just be able to sleep in on Sunday and smoke weed and hang around naked. He um, said, I-, I want to be happy. Um, <laughs> I see you too. Um, but, and the interviewer says, you're right, you know, you're like, uh, it's better, if you want to be happy, be a narcissist. Well. The problem is that's the message to the younger generation and the real problem is that well we've done a lot of research on what makes people happy and oddly enough what makes you happy is when you give your life away it's a pain <laughs> but there's no getting to happy by being selfish um, how you get to happy is by offering yourself away the greatest gift is not what we can do for each other it's what we can sacrifice for each other that in the bible god in exodus says that we must make an offering of our lives we must sacrifice our lives on the altar of god so we take up the sacrifice of christ we the offering is us offering our lives back to god in the form of bread and wine so you have this Old Testament theme that God commands us to make a sacrifice. And then in the Old Testament, and I love this, um, Abraham, from uh, Genesis to Abraham, always is uh, offering many things up. In Exodus, God commands on every Sabbath that you offer bread and wine. And I know I mentioned this before, the reason why God says this is, that I don't need the bread and wine. I don't need anything from you. You people need to learn how to make your lives a gift, an offering. Um, like I, I know I overuse this, but I love the line in the Old Testament. How dare anybody show up to the presence of God without a gift to offer? Your, our lives are supposed to be offered back. And so in the Old Testament, there's this thing called the um, Lechem Ha Pinin. Anybody know what the Lechem Ha Penine is? I'm just kind of curious. Okay, I'll go over this briefly, but maybe in some other class more. The lechem hapanim is there's many sacred meals in the old testament there's the passover you have to celebrate that but there's also um, other sacrifices but and there's the bread of life but then there's also the lechem hapanim lechem hapanim in hebrew just gets translated the bread of the presence or literally it would be the bread of the face of god and so the bread of the face of god is this God commands, no, you have to make an offering of your life. And every Sabbath, offer bread and wine on the altar before the tabernacle, before the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. And the priests eat it, and it's 12 loaves of bread and two flagons of wine. 12 symbolizes us, the 12 tribes, and 2 two symbolizes relationship, that we're in relationship. So that's the lechem ha panim, the bread of the face of God then God says, I will never let you off this command. You will do this forever, perpetually. And so think about this. We as Catholics, we still offer bread and wine on the altar of God. And the bread and wine at this point, it it doesn't symbolize God. Who does it symbolize? Us, offering our lives to God. Um, Okay, so does that make sense or did I lose anybody? Okay. So, yeah, God says, no, that's why you have to do it every Sabbath to remind us, oh, no, our lives are not supposed to be lived like narcissists, um, naked in bed, smoking pot. Um, Our lives is to be given away. And so the bread of the face of God, like even the Eucharist, the word Eucharist would translate right as um, Thanksgiving, and it does mean that. But technically, Eucharist, um, E U is how you, is the uh, letters for good in in Greek. So like the um, uh, evangelon um, is, how you say gospel is E-U, then tidings, good tidings. Eucharist is E-U, so that's good, and the other part means offering, good offering. A good offering is done in thanksgiving. So I love the fact that the word for gospel and Eucharist actually have the same roots um christ came to show us how to make a sacrifice so if you're baptized then yes every sabbath you must make an offering of our lives um we offer our lives in the symbols of bread and wine so think about this that's the difference between mass and a communion service what's the difference between mass and communion service because at mass, you'll receive the Eucharist. At a communion service, you'll receive the Eucharist. So what's the difference? What's the one part that's missing from a com- what's that? Well, but you get the consecrated Eucharist at a communion service. It doesn't happen there, but no, even before the consecration, what doesn't happen? There's no offering. You've, uh, at a communion service, you've offered nothing to God. You receive something. Um, that's why technically um, a mass has to start with us offering our God. Abraham he first offers something. So the biblical way of worshiping is not me, I get something. That's actually really Protestant. The Jewish and Catholic way of worshiping is that no, worship starts by us making an offering. And as I said, the study on happiness shows that people who give their time and talent and treasure away, they end up at happy. That's why God commands us that, no, we have to constantly make this offering. Or Gandhi, Gandhi said this, religion without sacrifice is useless. And I think he's right. The typical way, no offense, most Americans worship is not the Eucharist. They make no sacrifice. And religion without sacrifice is useless. It's only ego gratification. So um, I do think it's interesting, too, in this huge study, Who Cares? That's the name of the book, on who gives the most in the United States? Who, who gives the most in the sense of time? Volunteers at their kids' soccer game, and um, volunteers in hospitals. What group of people offer the most? Of religious people, guess what? overwhelmingly of religious people what denominations offers the most because think about this jews and catholics are commanded by god to make an offering of their lives and so the bread at this point in the mass it symbolizes us it reminds us that unity and bread is about unity it takes time and commitment it's difficult and painful so to make bread which i've never done in my life nor probably will you take individual grains of wheat, that's us, and they have to be broken open to make one loaf. They have to be separated from their useless parts, from the stock, from the chaff, and ground up to make flour. Um, that's, you know, Lent to us. We're being ground, being freed from our ego so that we become pure flour. Um, so the bread, it symbolizes a community that. Has been changed. We no longer live in ego. We've lost that. We've been ground. And so that we become one. And then it takes a little bit of water and heat. That the water, guess what the water is? Okay, somebody I hope said baptism. I couldn't tell. The water is baptism. Does that make sense? Lent is us being ground from our ego. Then the water is added. And then the heat, the heat is confirmation. And then we become bread, and we've changed. We no longer live for ourselves, we live in union with each other. So the bread symbolizes us that's going to be offered. So Jesus, think about this, he identified himself with food to be eaten. Why didn't Jesus identify as a big rock, where every year we go back to the rock and look at it and remember him? Because the thing about food is that food doesn't exist for itself. Bread does not exist just for itself. It exists to be eaten by others and nourish others. A bottle of wine, it's not made to be put on the shelf. It's made to be uncorked and shared among friends. So the thing about food is that it doesn't exist for itself, it exists for others. It gives up its life for the life of others. Um, That's what we're supposed to do. So the offering of the bread and wine symbolizes, oh, this is baptism and confirmation. Um, we've been freed from our ego so that we can offer ourselves. Now, if it gets too elaborate, I think you lose the symbolism. But I love that. Or the, the cup, the same thing. The grapes. You know, we're all individual grapes. Um, and in the early church, they had this, uh, uh, I read this from one of the early church fathers, that As grapes lose the skins of their selfishness and become one wine, um, we, when we die, will lose the skins of our selfishness and heaven will be united together as wine. Like, I love that. That we'll be so united together. We'll be like wine. Except we won't lose our individuality. We won't lose our uniqueness. But be completely one. You just can't pick out one grape from a glass of wine. It all becomes united together. And in heaven, heaven will be a place where we're completely free from the skins of our selfishness and really become this Eucharistic wine of Christ. So it sounds strange, but a lot of people don't understand why you'd want to be free from your selfishness. And I read this thing, um, it's called Deliver Us from Evil, by Dr. Tom Dooley, if you remember, years ago in Vietnam. And he tells about treating this old priest who was punished by the communists in um, East Asia for "quote unquote" preaching treason, and he? They put eight nails in, driven into his head, um, three in front, two in back, three on the top. And Dr. Tom Dooley writes, "I washed the scalp, dislodged the clots, and opened the pockets to drain the infection. I gave the priest massive doses of penicillin and." tetanus oxide the old man pulled through one day i went to treat him and he disappeared father lopez told me that he had gone back behind the bamboo curtain which means he's gone back to his torturers and he said why would the old priest go back again and he wrote it's the crushed grape that yields the wine so okay i i find that beautiful sorry but um We're the ones who week after week after week, we go back just in this part of the rite to offer our lives so that hopefully we do become like the old priest. We can't think of our own pain. We so think of other people that will give our lives away. I love that the grapes, um, that reflection, that we're meant to be crushed uh, and offered as wine. Now, I really hope my life doesn't end in torture, um, but if it does, I hope I have the wisdom and enjoy joy to think of it as becoming like pure wine. You know, like, ah, this will just lose my selfishness. So that's why the bread and wine are brought forward. Because God commanded, God commands it so that we don't live selfishly. That we have to offer our lives. Now, unfortunately, this the part of this Eucharist, it used to be popular to bring up other junk. So, like, butte but miners would off bring in front of the altar and place in front of the altar uh, their miners hats. Or, back at this parish St. Mark's, we had the kids bring up and um, bring up their books and put it before the altar as an offering to God. Liturgically, that's wrong. Um, and so, actually, I had to tell them, "Oh, we're not going to be doing that anymore," um, because anything that's placed before or on the altar, is now the property of God. So, like with those textbooks, what's going to happen to those textbooks after Mass if you place it before the altar? They're going to take it back, right? No, no, that's not your textbook anymore. That belongs to God. Uh, So why do we, at a funeral, put uh, somebody's remains in front of the altar? They now belong to God. They're not yours. No offense. A married couple. You, um, you stand before the altar of God and you make your vows, you are no longer just yourself. You can't think of your. You're not supposed to think of yourself. Your marriage belongs to God. Does that make sense? It's not about you. Anything place like... So that's why, like, I know this sounds strange. You're not supposed to put flowers on the altar because you'll take them back. Um, do you know what an Indian giver is? Has you, have you ever heard that? Um This is, a story, this is a story of an Indian giver. This is actually how it came about. So, and it's somewhere in the Northwest here. They had these Indians that would give a gift. They, I would give you a gift. And these white settlers would take the gift and like put it on their mantle. But that's where it'd stay and just for themselves. And so after a year in this Indian culture, you're allowed to come and take the gift back if you haven't used that gift and shared it with somebody else passed it on then that means that their spirit is stuck in your selfishness so they're allowed to come and take it back Um, so you know white settlers are like but you gave it to me but it was supposed to be given away does that make sense like and so think about this Um, in a sense we're Indian givers, if God gives us talents and all this other stuff and we use it just for ourselves, don't show up to Mass. If you think all your talents and goods are just spent on yourself, um, that's where God's spirit is stuck. And remember the parable of the talents, where the third person, um, God says, no, wait, I gave you those talents, and you buried them. You used them just on yourself. It was supposed to be invested in the lives of other people. So, like, I love the liturgy of the Eucharist. Week after week after week, um, we make this offering of our lives. Um, Now, where are the bread and wine placed um, at this point of the Mass? No, they're not on the altar. That's during the Eucharistic prayer in the back of the church where the people sit because the bread and the wine, it symbolizes us. Uh, it will be consecrated to be the real presence of Christ on the altar. But at this point in the Eucharist, it's not Christ, it's us. Does that make sense? Um, uh, and in the book of Exodus, it's supposed to be put on a white marble table, which I know this sounds kind of strange, but I found a white marble table that doesn't really match the church, but I'm going to put in the back of the church, because I love the fact that, no, I, I love obeying these little tiny rules in the book of Leviticus, or Exodus. Like, Why a white marble table? Because that's where we make an offering of our lives. Or a Roman coin. They found this old Roman coin, and it has on one side an ox grazing, and on the other, uh, grazing but also hooked to a plow. And the other side of the coin has this ox on an altar. And beneath the image it said, um, ready for either. I just love it. Like, oh, we're supposed to be the Roman ox. We're a beast of burden, either in our work or our death. We're ready for either. We're offering everything to God. Um, And going back, I mentioned about the um, guy who was an alcoholic who realized, wow, I can offer God my struggle for sobriety. Like, you just don't offer God your gifts. You can offer God your pains and sufferings. Um, this one guy, like this, um, in this interview, um, he had ALS. My dad died of ALS. But when he was first diagnosed, he said, quote-unquote, I tried to play the big man. That I'm tougher than any of it. And he says, you know what, my wife got tired of it. Um, and then I started to practice silence. Um, and then I have this pain and fear of rejection and being helpless. And I started in silence, starting to pray, and he said, I heard as clear as a voice somebody say, don't you think I know something about pain? And he took it that it was Christ saying that. And so after that, when he would go to mass, he started to offer God his fear of ALS. And he said, the odd part is, I became free of it. And there was this new beginning, a new birth of my marriage, that the best um, my marriage was, was when I was offering my fear to God, not when I was playing the big man. So it still frees us from the skins of selfishness, but sometimes the way you get free from selfishness, the skins of our selfishness is, yes, offer God on the altar your, al- your fear, your ego. And Does that make any sense? Not just your good gifts. Um, and then the gifts come forward, and the wine is mixed with water. The reason why is that um, in ancient times, wine was uh, slightly diluted of its water content and became very thick and heavy. So uh, they would rehydrate it by adding water. Um, But in the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes around the world uh, singing the song, inviting people to her meal and she says "Uh, i've mixed my water and my wine so we mix the water and wine that wow it is a fulfillment that this is the meal of the holy spirit Uh, the water and wine has been mixed and when the priest adds the water and wine it symbolizes um, the water is us and the wine is Christ's divinity that the two will be so mixed together that you can't separate so that's the Prayer that the priest says why he's adding or the deacon why he's adding the water to the wine and the action is at this point the action is placing the wine and the bread on the table it's not offering it up to God the action is going down being placed on something is getting placed on the altar so like let's just drive him at the wall Bishop Mike um, uh, former bishop when he received the bread and wine he would hold it up the sky and i told him you know in the rubrics, you're not supposed to do that when it's held the highest is when it's been changed into the body and blood of christ now it's about going down but he said he didn't care because he liked the drama um um anyhow um and that's why god made him bald um just kidding but like in the old ritual rubrics in the old rubrics that said the priests are only supposed to hold them three inches above the altar so that you can see, oh, it's not about going up. It's about, uh, I'm putting something, I am putting my life on the altar. Um, and then, you have this strange little part. Now remember, everything comes from the Bible, or at least 90% of it. Then the priest places it down, and then he says, pray, my brothers and sisters, that these gifts, which represent our lives, may be an acceptable sacrifice to God, the Almighty Father. And then you guys say something, I don't know what you say. Um, but you guys say, I know, uh, but uh, you guys say the second half of that prayer. Where in the Bible does that take place? So where it takes place is, do you remember the story of the three boys in the furnace? Um, no, oh yeah, okay. Somebody said no. So um, they're in exile, this pagan king says, nobody's allowed to worship. Um, any other god but me. I am a god. And the three boys get caught praying to Yahweh. And so they're going to be made an example of. And th- you know, think symbolically. This whole class is about really us being able to think symbolically, not literally. So the three boys are bound up, and they're in exile. There's no more priests. There's no temple. Um, and so there's three boys... Um, Abednego, Nishak, um, Horshak, and Abednego. Um, you caught that. <laughs> There's no horse. Um, and Abednego, before they're about to be thrown into the fire, says this prayer. He says, We don't have any priests, so let, we don't have any, anything to offer God, so let our lives be an offering. He says this prayer. They say part of it. We're acting out the three boys. But now think symbolically what happens. It says that it's a mountain of fire. That's what it says. I'll give you the first symbol. And the question will be, well, who in the Bible symbolizes a mountain of fire? God the Father. It's like Sinai. Sinai means burning. Um, Moses go to Mount Sinai, the burning mountain. Um, The word in Hebrew, El Shaddai. Almighty God is how we translate it in English. But El Shaddai, technically in Hebrew, means uh, God of the mountain. God the Father is pictured as a mountain. So they throw the boys into this mountain of fire, but the boys don't die. They live. They sacrifice their lives, but they're not dying, they're living. And then they look in and they say, oh, uh, it's like a cool breeze, Ruha, among them. Who is a, a breath of cool breeze? Who is the Holy Spirit? And then they look in a third time and they say, Ah, oh, there's a fourth one among them, one like the Son of Man. Who is the fourth one? Christ. And so think about this they live in the Trinity. You could only read that from a Christian perspective, that they offer their lives and instead of dying, they live. And then if you read Daniel after that, for pages, it goes off that everywhere they look, they see the presence of God. And they do this praises. Praise God in the snow. Praise God in the animals. Praise God in the Minnesota Vikings. Praise God in... Um, everywhere they look, living in the Trinity, they see the presence of God. That's what we're doing at this point. That's why I say part of the prayer, you say part of the prayer. I'm, we're reacting, Abednego, with this theme. that no, You understand if we offer our lives we don't lose anything we gain everything we gain union with each other we live in the middle of the trinity everywhere we see we see the presence of god week after week we're acting out that part
1: um
0: and then the priest bows say this prayer for humility um so um i just have to say i just love love that whole thing and then he washes his hands i mentioned this on sunday in the book of leviticus when a priest is about to make an offering, he has to wash his hands, and it's this prayer that our sacrifice be pure, because in the book of Leviticus, it mentions, and this is actually part of what it means when it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. A lot of people think it means, oh, don't say GD. No, it's to misuse religion, and so he washes his hands, that it be a pure sacrifice, and a priest is for to offer a sacrifice. If in his heart he has any impulse, like, oh, this is going to get me more power, or this is going to pay off for me, or this is going to make me something. And that's what I really hate about the gospel of prosperity. You worship God, then God blesses you with a truck. That technically in the book of Leviticus is an unclean sacrifice. No, you worship God for God. Um, so the priest washes his hands, because uh, you're about to step into the Holy of Holies. Um that's, that's the take. The second part is the bless. Oh, I'm really behind. The second part is the bless. Oh, I'll go get this. Um, and the key concept here is the invoking of the Holy Spirit, that it changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And Jews had hundreds of these prayers, hundreds of these little prayers that you would say. Um, they're called the Barakah. And um, they had one, it all it's always the same pattern. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Um, and so if they saw a dead body, you'd say, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, ruler of the living, judge of the dead. If you saw like a flower bloom, the prayer goes, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness, um, you have made the universe and made all things well. Um, oddly enough, I met this Sunday, the Celts in the fifth century, they had very similar practice, oh. saying prayers when you saw certain saying prayers when you saw certain things. So the barakah always starts off the same way, and it's blessed are you Lord God of all creation through your goodness we have, and then that part of the prayer changes. So if you notice, that's why the priest says blessed are you Lord God of all creation. That's Jewish. Does that make sense? That's that's a Jewish prayer. So like once I was at this meal. And now it's a kind of a supper club. And um it was a really nice, but we there's a bunch of people for this meal, and somebody kind of said something that was slightly anti-Jewish. And there's a Jewish couple among the cocktail party. Yeah, it's like, oh god, I can't believe they said that. So when it came time to say the blessing over the meal, they said, Oh, Father Len, would you say the blessing? And just because I know some a Jewish couple were insulted. I kind of thought, I'm going to say the berakah. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through goodness we have this meal. Um, anyhow, uh, afterwards, later when we're walking around, this the Jewish man says thank you. <laughs> like he knew that was a Jewish prayer. So if a Jew came to Mass, they'd realize oh the Eucharistic starts off with a berakah. It's that's why. Because that's what Jesus. Jesus says the Barakah, and then goes into the Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayer. I'm going to edit my comments now. It's based on the Passover prayer. It starts with the past. It ends with the future, when all of us will be united together. What Jesus did was use this prayer, but gave it its own meaning. That in Him, uh, a new meaning that includes Himself. What He's what the Father is doing in and through him. Now, the apostles, they would have known exactly what this means. It means, oh, he's the Messiah. He's come to bring out the new Passover. So the basic elements of the Eucharistic prayer have the Passover in it. The Passover starts with the youngest child asking, why are we here? Why is this night different? And so the Eucharistic prayer starts with the preface. Which answers the question, why are we here for this Eucharist? So the preface is that part that says, it starts with the priest saying, The Lord be with you. Good job. Now, there's actually, remember I said, every time you hear the phrase, The Lord be with you, um, that's a big red arrow saying, Here's one of the presences of Christ. And then he says the preface, why we're here. There's 80 prefaces in the sacramentary for different occasions. And preface just means to speak out. Um, so the preface answers the why are we here? That's how the Passover starts. And then the Lord be with you, we lift, uh, we lift up our hearts to the Lord. That's from the book of Leviticus. Um, Let us give thanks. That's a Jewish blessing over the cup. Um, and I do love that lift up your hearts. Now, granted, it is from the Bible, the book of Leviticus, when you pray, but St. Augustine makes a um, big point in this that our hope is not down here. Our hearts are moving to be more connected to God and each other. Our hearts are going up. So true religion is this act of justice because we're not concerned about taking care of ourselves. Our hearts are going up to heaven and it ends with the holy, holy, which I love. The holy, holy, um, the holy holy in the Bible, if you notice, happens a couple times in the Bible. Um, when, when somebody sees heaven, they see the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. What does the word holy mean? The word holy simply means different. So think about this. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the see the angels, and when they look at God, all they can say is, you are different, you are different, you are different. In the book of Revelation, all the angels and saints look at God, and what can they say for all eternity? You are different, you are different, you are different. Now, if you know that, when we do it at Mass, it's making the statement that, oh, I get it. The Eucharist is not just us here in tiny, tiny little Coeur d'Alene celebrating a Mass. We're celebrating it with everybody in heaven. That we're all in this one act of worship. Everybody on earth, everybody, there's only one Eucharist, and that's Christ, no matter when or where it's celebrated. And all of us are taken up into the heavenly liturgy. That's that holy, 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 which I kind of love. We join in their song. They don't join in us. So um, we'd say, well, no, the church exists beyond time and space. And that's what the liturgy is showing. Um, anyhow, so has a holy, holy. Then the next part is an epiclesis, where we pray that the Holy Spirit come down and change it from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And just, um, I know this sounds strange, but like I love this. When priests are ordained, their hands are anointed, right? Why? Because it says so. That's why in the Bible. Um In the Old Testament, priests' hands were anointed because they're going to call down the Holy Spirit, the Shekhena of God. And so, yeah, our hands are anointed because we're calling down the Holy Spirit. And this, this is a a Hebrew letter for Shekhena, the Holy Spirit. So the reason why the priest does this gesture is it's calling down, it's supposed to be this gesture, but um, because this is, is calling the Holy Spirit down. Um, and then you have the narrative. This is my body. This is my blood. Now, in the Greek, the only way you can interpret when Jesus says, this is my body, is this is my body. Not symbolically. Greek is far more sophisticated than um, English. That in Greek, you could say it in many ways. But the only way you can interpret it in this Greek is, no, he really means this is my body and this is my blood. Because um, I hate I hate it when uh, like Protestants would say, well he just meant my words are bread. He didn't say the words are his bread, he said this is my body and blood, this is my flesh. Um, and it sounds strange, but I, I had this happen a couple times when I was at uh, Holy Apostles, where our RCA group, one year was 200. Um, Most years were about 100 people. So I'm serious. I want you people to invite people to become Catholic. Um, It's not the priest that evangelize. It's you. I can teach him Catholicism, but you have to bring him in. But this one guy, uh, we had several pastors who would check out um, Catholicism, and they end up being converted. And one guy, he was an associate pastor at this... mega church just down the road. And the only reason why he came to the RCA classes is because his in-laws were Catholic. And he considered that going to hell. So he wanted to attend the classes to find up something to object to. Does that make sense? But the problem is he becomes Catholic and um like our notion of baptism is that it's a sacrament. And on the baptismal class he was like, oh my gosh, I like theirs just a dedication, not a real sacrament. And so when he studies the Greek and what Jesus said, um, it's like, oh my gosh, it is a sacrament. Then when we go over the Eucharist, he's blown away. Um, and then he comes to me and he says, you know, I've, that really blew me away. And um, he says, the more and more I thought about it, the more that, oh, I do believe that, yeah, I get it. That's how Christ wants us to worship. Um, except the problem is, he's getting paid really big bucks as this. Like $100,000 for an uh, associate pastor. But he said, What, you know, I could stick with this job. It pays really well. But what do I tell my kids? Because he had some kids. He says, Dude, one day I'll tell them the truth. I'd, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff. Um, I actually believe in Catholicism. But the money was too good. <laughs> that was, and the odd part is that, you know, I do believe in the real presence of Christ. Um he studied the Greek, he loves the Bible. Um, like he did believe in it, and his church doesn't believe in it. So he said, What do I do? Do I stand before the judgment of God saying, Yeah, thank you for the money? Um, but he did and he took a huge salary cut and became Catholic. Um then became a teacher. But um, like even during COVID, when that strange part when everything was locked down and I'd be celebrating in mass alone. We put pictures of parishioners on all the pews. Um, but it was really just me. And I can see way out of the back some guy kneeling in the courtyard uh, through the red glass doors. And it was him. Um, like, ah, I give him credit. Like, knowing point being is that even him, he wanted so hard to disbelieve uh, that this is my body, this is my blood. But, ah, wow. If you really study the Bible, that's what it is. So the narrative institution is the words of the Last Supper, uh, where Christ prays the priest. Um, and it is the New Testament, the new Passover. Um, so it does all that, but then um, it ends with the future, just like the... Um, uh, sorry, now I have to really <laughs> skip a lot. Skip a lot because I overprepared. prepared um, it ends in the future when all of us will be united together. Um, that's how the Passover ends. And then it ends with an amen. Now, this sounds strange. just want to get it: amen. Sometimes you hear people say, amen means I believe. That's not true. Um, that was popular in the 70s to tell people that. Really, if you want to translate it, it'd be more I commit. That every meal with God is you're making a commitment. So the amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer that we all say together is that, yes, we do believe it is the body and blood of Christ. We are worshiping. And the Eucharistic prayer is designed where you start from the past and move to the future so that you either have to say, yes, I will be a part of what God is doing, or no, I'm not. If that's a part, then don't say amen and walk out of the church this time. The great amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer is saying, yes, I will be part of all this. What God has been doing in history, what God is doing in the future, where all of us will be gathered together around the Eucharistic uh, altar of Christ. Um, So we'd say, oh, we're we're saying yes to it all. Um, Okay. I ran out of time, so um, sorry about that. Uh, But that's just the take and the bless. So even though I'm sorry, I'm five minutes over. Um, any questions, objections? Yes, uh, Tamarack. When it's on the white table. <clears throat> oh, that's so good. So. Picked up on something. If you notice, you always have this theme of bread and wine. And how does God bless Abraham with bread and wine? Right? So we'd say, no, that bread and wine is not the body and blood of Christ, but it's a prefigurement of the Eucharist. But how does God really bless us with bread and wine? So the Lekem Ha Panim, can I does that answer your question? So, yeah. So no, bread and wine symbolizes making a commitment, but also a blessing in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, oh, that blessing will be the very presence of Christ. So we'd say it fulfills all those bread and wines in the Old Testament. But yeah, this priest, Melchizedek, and it's strange. He says he's the high priest of Yahweh, but this is with Abraham. It's not going to be 100 or 100 years until... God reveals his name as Yahweh. So who is this priest of Yahweh that existed before we even knew who Yahweh was? And he says that he's the king of the city of peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not going to happen until David. So who is this king of the city of peace, high priest of Yahweh, before we even knew who Yahweh was? You know, like, uh, we'd say, oh, it's Christ. Christ. It's a prefigurement of the Eucharist in Christ and how God really blesses us with bread and wine. Or, the, like the lechem ha panim, the bread of the face of God. You know why they called it the Le- lechem ha-penim? Um, um, sorry, I'm forgetting. Oh, um, uh, the Abraham and um, that God is typified by uh, bread and wine. But when Moses goes up on the mountain, what does God look like? God looks like a meal, bread and wine. Uh, so that's why it's called the face of God. And now, that won't make any sense in the Old Testament. You think, well, that's just weird. Um, but if you're Catholic, you would like, oh, I get it. Yes, the true lechem ha panin is the Eucharist. The true bread and wine of the face of God is the Eucharist. So you have these things in the Old Testament that don't make much sense, but then with a Catholic perspective, it's like, oh, that's why Melchizedek blessed Abraham with bread and wine. Does that make sense? Okay. Good, good call, Tamarack. Yeah. Well, there was. So you're a big fat liar, and I want you out. Um, uh, so she asked, why was there no cloth on the altar there was but the cloth that has to be in the altar is a corporal so the corporal is on but nowhere in the rubrics does it say listen i want fancy cloth around the edges that's actually not part of the rubrics that's just us you know jigging it up a little but the problem is i i took off the altar the i don't want to say altar that The decorations, because I wanted to see what was underneath. And once I saw the altar, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful!" Um, But here, I'm gonna change it because I'm gonna put altar panels. uh, Like you have that beautiful wood, and then you have the wood down here. I'm gonna put altar panels on it uh, for different seasons. Like one altar panel will, Christmas will be Jesus and the Nativity, because the Eucharist is. Jesus being laid in the manger. You know, the feeding trough. So, that way I can change it season to season. What's that? Candles. Well, technically there's two candles on each side. Yeah. But you, you can put candles on the altar, but I don't like candles on the altar because anything that is on the altar belongs to God. And then we can use them as pre- processional candles. And the processional candles, everything is supposed to lead to the altar. So like this sounds strange. I don't want to upset people, but like the processional cross, it's brought forward and then it's supposed to be it's when it's by the altar, it's the altar cross. But we put our clears over there. Um like I, I just you're only supposed to just allow one altar. We're sorry, one cross in the sanctuary. We actually have three. Um like not that that's bad, but like I want to get rid of the, the I hate to tell you, don't tell anyone, um, because I know people will get upset, but like the risen Christ without any wounds, that's technically not a cross. And there is a cross behind him. But to be honest, I want to change that and actually put something of the body of Christ on it. Does that make so? So when the, the processional cross comes forward, the altar cross is the one that's above the altar. Technically, we don't have that. We have the altar cross on the altar. Oh, that's because of COVID and Yeah, yeah. So I do love holy water, but uh, hospitals are full. So do what we can. So, um, as I said, next week we'll do the. Uh, uh, Bless, no, break, break and share and the dismissal. And then after that, I'm going to have two classes on the archangels. Um, And the reason why that puts us in the end of September, the Feast of the Archangels is October. So, and then after that, we'll do some classes on the book of Luke. So, yes, thank you for coming. Um, God bless you.